You are listening to Evidence of Things Screened. I'm your host, Lincoln Alabaster. Today's show is titled First and Last. My guest, Brooke Pierce, is here to discuss a little-known independent film named First Reform, starring Ethan Hawke. This is the first film we've covered on this podcast that I'm not recommending to everyone as a must-see. Why? Well, keep listening, because the next episode of Evidence of Things Screened starts now. Once again, this is Evidence of Things Screened. I'm Lincoln Alabaster, and with me here is Brooke Pierce, a playwright in New York City, which sounds pretty glamorous. So welcome to the show, Brooke. Uh, The people want to know, just how glamorous is the playwright life in New York City? (laughs) Um, Not as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, (laughs) Oh, no. uh, Yeah, no, pity. Um, Like like a lot of playwrights, I have a lot of... uh, uh, plays in drawers and uh, you know half-written plays on my hard drive and uh, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. I I make my living not playwriting. I did study it in school, but I make my living as a copywriter. So that's uh, a little bit more of what my actual life is like. But uh, there you go. Yeah, but I do. I have a musical that I co-wrote with my friend Masi Asari, who's an amazing songwriter, and it gets produced uh, several times a year at high schools and community theaters. So we've got something That's out there. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. That sounds that sounds a little bit glamorous. <laughs> so of course your writing talents will certainly prove useful in our discussion of this very dialogue heavy film. But I ask you to be a guest today because of your activism on a number of social issues. Could you speak a little bit about your involvement in the peace ministry at Church of the Advent Hope? Yeah, sure. Um, Advent Hope uh, became a member of the Adventist Peace Fellowship a few years ago, and so a peace ministry was established as a part of that. And it's basically like a social justice ministry. I've been involved for a few years now. I became uh, the coordinator this year, so I've been uh, you know, organizing different things. And uh, some of the stuff we've done this year, for instance, we did uh, a letter-writing campaign um, where we wrote letters to uh, Congress people asking them to fund hunger programs. Um, mm-hmm. We did the AIDS walk, which is something I've actually been organizing for a few years. We had a, a discussion, uh, like a Sabbath afternoon discussion on uh, domestic violence and sexual assault, which is a topic doesn't get discussed enough in church. No, it doesn't. Yeah, and, uh, and we, had like a, we had a presentation recently where um, on the Rohingya genocide in Burma, we invited some experts to talk uh, to the church about that. So we tried to hit a few different things, and actually um, in, a, in about a week, we're going to take part in a, in a march um, that is going to be happening all over the country on June 30th uh, regarding the separation of uh, ch- children from their parents at the border. So we're kind of trying to dip our toe in, in a lot of different types of activism. Yeah, this, you said you took over about a year ago? Uh, at the beginning of this year. Yeah, so you've been quite busy. <laughs> yeah, I've tried. <laughs> well, there's no shortage of things to do. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. um, so today's film, First Reform, it deals with several heavy subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, the role of the church in social activism, and as the film uh deals with uh, particularly climate change, then there's the idea of the church as a business 
and there's how to handle or not handle inner torment, uh, among other topics. And so we'll do three segments on the podcast, as usual, with the first covering the idea of the church as a for-profit enterprise, the second covering the church and social justice warriors, as some people like to term them, and finally covering how one or should or should not respond to perceived problems with um, either of the first two. So segment one, we're titling God or Mammon. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, let it be known that on Evidence of Things Green, we cover the full box office spectrum because the previous episode with Andrea Francis, we talked about the $1.3 billion grossing film, The Black Panther. And now (laughs) we're talking about a film that has grossed about $2 million just a few weeks after its release. And so the latter film, of course, is First Reformed, written and directed by Paul Schrader, who is the screenwriter of such iconic films as Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And I had to confirm this because I heard that he's never been nominated for an Academy Award. That's unreal. Is that, I mean... <laughs> Not, really? for, not for screenplay? I don't get that. Yeah, really? <laughs> Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, you never... It's like, wow. That's surprising. When you think about some of the people who do have Academy Awards, and you're like... And he's he hasn't even been nominated. So that that I'm sure maybe, maybe this year, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will write that wrong and at least give him an, a screenplay nod. But um, so the film centers on Reverend Ernst Toller, played by Ethan Hawke and what I think is his best performance in a long time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he, he knocked it out the park. Um, he's a man who's, one, haunted by his past, two, who is suffering from a very present illness, and three, whose future and faith takes a darker turn after an encounter with a young couple in his congregation, played by Amanda Seyfried and Philip Edinger. So, this is a film that's both fully austere and fully intense. I never thought that that could be co- those things could be coexisting in a film, but it could have been a masterpiece. <laughs> could have been way better. <laughs> could have been a masterpiece if it hadn't gone off the rails toward the end. Um, you know, there's a bizarre climax. There was that fantasy sequence, which just. I mean, in a film that was so grounded in realism. Yeah, yeah, they really took a departure. They did. <laughs> so, in my opinion, I, you know, I applaud Schrader for the the ambition, but I think he tried to out taxi driver, taxi driver, <laughs> and he didn't quite get there. So, it's not a film I, I feel a need to recommend for everyone. Some may like it, some may not, but um, the themes are timely and they're richly explored here. And I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So, Brooke, what was your reaction to this film when you first saw it? And has it changed at all since then? Uh, Very similar to yours. And I I couldn't recommend it either. I had a friend who texted me the next day and asked if she should see it. And I was just like, I can't quite recommend it. But at the same time, I was very glad I saw it. And I'm actually anxious to hear what other people uh, think about it. Um, Like you said, I think it's very... uh, very rich themes and and very well explored. So it's worthwhile. It's just, I don't know, yeah. a little confusing <laughs> by yeah. the end. But. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, that's 
you know, I think a common reaction is that even though you wouldn't necessarily recommend it, that you're not you're not mad that you saw it. No, yeah. You're not upset. So for me, it's like there's so many emotions. I was somewhat fascinated, but then repulsed, (laughs) dumbfounded, a little angry, and even a little appreciative of the whole experience. So I guess on that level, just from a pure cinematic level, it's like, okay, maybe that's, that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, it was an uncomfortable film to watch but very uncomfortable I, I literally the lady behind me at watched she was muttering through the whole thing and at one point she's like this is so hard to watch <laughs> i thought well you're not wrong but but i don't know worthwhile I yeah still. it was i felt mm-hmm. it was worthwhile i'm not i'm not upset that i saw it it was just it, it gave me like a visceral reaction to mm-hmm. it and you know it was highly original or or so i thought until you know i found out that schrader he's talked about this openly that he has it was heavily influenced by two films, Winter Light from Swedish director Ingmar Bergman and Diary of a Country Priest from French director Robert Bresson. Mm. But I do not know those movies. Yeah, I, they're, they're <laughs> from back in the 50s and 60s. So there, there are many elements of those about like a priest having a crisis of faith and things like that. So those. Well, that's not a new subject right yeah right so for his film this film he he drew heavily from those but i digress you know in the weeks since i've watched it i have grown to really appreciate everything that comes before it goes <laughs> off the rails yes totally I so agree. so we won't go plot point by plot point uh in this one but but rather we will talk about some of the themes as we we had spoke of before And in this first segment, as I mentioned, I wanted to discuss the intersection of church and commerce that's explored in the film. First Reformed is, in the film, is a Protestant church in upstate New York preparing for its 250th anniversary. And Reverend Toller oversees a a rather sparse congregation. And when he's not doing that, he's leading touring groups around the sanctuary since First Reformed is a designated historical landmark. And when he's not doing that, he's journaling, he's unclogging toilets, <laughs> he's drinking alcohol. Oh, my. A lot. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, First Reformed is overshadowed and overseen by the nearby megachurch, Abundant Life, led by Pastor Joel Jeffers, played very impressively by Cedric Kyles, known also as Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was. It was just a surprise it was a, casting. It was a good, it was a good casting move, I thought. Yeah, yeah it mm-hmm. really was. But surprising, yeah. It could have backfired. It could have, yes. <laughs> it could have really backfired, but it didn't. Cedric, you did your thing. So, Brooke, the film contrasts this small, modest, white church against a multicultural, full-service megachurch perhaps suggesting that the former is a relic of the past while the latter is a way of the present and future. But, you know, the film maybe also is saying that that's not necessarily a good thing, that the future is looking like this. I don't know. I'm, I'm just interested to see if you saw it that way. And Well, that, I mean, that contrast was, to me, one of the most striking things yeah. about the movie. Um, you know, and, and probably anybody who's familiar with church life would find that interesting, um, that contrast between those two. I, 
I mean, you could say he was passing a little judgment, but I'm not sure that he was. It felt a little bit objective to me, like he was just showing what it is. I mean, the, the truth is there are small churches with small congregations that are kind of quiet and dying, frankly, which is kind of what this church looks like. The the other one, we never really see them, um, the big church, we never really see them in service. They're, That's a good point. Yeah, it's like you see the kind of antiseptic administrative side of it a lot. Um I, it kind of felt to me like maybe it was a metaphor for how Toller is feeling, you know, this sort of mm. despair and, um, you know, that it was meant to reflect his his state of mind. We, ne- we never see, like, kind of the joyful part of church at all in, uh, in that depiction. Yeah. So that's interesting to me because do you think that that Schrader is indicting big churches – Small churches, all churches, or or none I mean, of the above. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's I, I'd actually like to know what his intention is. You could certainly like read negative stuff into it. And actually, once they get into some conversations that Toller has with some people, it it is indicting the church a little bit. I think in terms of its its lack of um, concern beyond its walls, you know. And we'll get a little into the commerce stuff later, probably. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. It was. I felt like he was more focused on on Toller's inner life than anything else, and that it was almost like he liked the the setting, the background of of these two churches. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, there was there was like one guy in the audience where I was who was laughing at everything to do with abundant life. Like you could see that he was sort of seeing it as almost like satire of the megachurch. Oh. Uh, world, and I could see how somebody could see it like that. But to, to me, it didn't. Like, I could see the humor. I saw a lot of humor in the movie. Yeah. It didn't feel laugh out loud funny to me. It felt more, like, subtle. Surprisingly so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I agree. I mean, I feel like in in this film, I feel like Schrader, in a way, is saying all churches are flawed because when you see churches are run by people and all people are flawed. Exactly. And so he showed that in many ways. And I guess the question is whether people are willing to acknowledge those flaws and and humble themselves or not and that's sort of like the king Saul versus king David I mean both both were very very sinful at certain points yeah. and it was only really David who was repentant so I, I feel like he, he's he's saying that that all all churches in some way are flawed yeah oh, um, that's yeah no that's a good interpretation yeah but yeah because ni- neither is really better than the the other, like you might like to think that the small church is the little yeah. David church that you know exactly. slays the Goliath, but it, it seems a bit a bit dead in there, honestly. It, it is, mm-hmm. and that's the contrast too, where it's like it may on the surface seem more pure, mm-hmm. but it's dying, and yet yeah. the the abundant life, which may be more corporate and has certainly has corporate ties, is just thriving. And ideally, though, shouldn't churches be growing? Jesus said, go and preach the gospel in all the world. And Acts 2.47, talking about the early church, it said, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, which is literally painted on the wall <laughs> at right. Abundant Life, that yeah. verse. So yeah. when it comes to mega churches, why do you think they invite so much suspicion? Well, I think you said the word corporate 
it, right. it, they feel corporate and people are, they, they feel slick sometimes too, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. production values and it, it feels a little bit like a show, I think. Mm, mm. And I, I think for a lot of people that, you know, they automatically kind of tense up at that because we feel like church should be, or religion should be an authentic uh, human grounded experience. And so sometimes it feels a little too much like theater, uh, those kinds of churches. So I think that's, I think that's part of it. Um, and then I think sometimes there's a guilt by association thing, you know, uh, televangelists and, mm. and then you hear about some mega church pastors who have big estates and asking for money to buy a private jet, for instance, <laughs> I mean, you, you could hardly imagine such a thing would happen, but maybe it would. Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> perhaps. So, yeah, then people get really, uh, you know, really suspicious of that. I mean, obviously, they, they understandably have big expenses at a big church. There's a lot of people, so there's nothing wrong with that. But, yeah, if people feel like the money is being misspent or, you know, that it's, it's more about the show than about people's spiritual lives, then I think they get. Yeah, I, the, that idea of church as entertainment, I think when you said that, it really... It reminded me it's something that is actually even talked about in the Bible um, in Ezekiel 33, actually, verses 30 to 32. God is talking to Ezekiel and telling him that people are coming to hear you because they like what how you sound. They like your voice. They like all of the things you have to say. It's, it's just for entertainment, but they are not actually following what you're saying. And so there's an entertainment value to what you're doing. And I, I just was surprised when I when I read that because it's like, oh, wow, this has been going on for a long <laughs> right. time. They had megachurches back then. <laughs> they had megachurches back then. People were yeah. flocking yeah. To, to hear the, the, you know, just the words and the way they were put together. And mm-hmm. he's even talking to him about your singing voice and the music. Yeah. And it's, so that's something as well that's, that's a huge part of mega churches, the right. worship and, you know, the, the pyrotechnics and all of that, which aren't necessarily wrong um, per se. They're right. not. Right. But it's just if that is done in in lieu of a, a true sort of spiritual experience or an emphasis, then I think that's what invites a lot of the skepticism. Yeah, I agree. As totally. well as you said, like the corporate <laughs> alignments and right. all of that where the influence of money, anytime you have that, it's going to taint mm-hmm. what what people think about a church. Yeah, absolutely. And so also in this kind of conflict and contrast, I, I see two extremes here between the two churches. One is the prosperity gospel and one is the poverty gospel. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I definitely saw some of the prosperity gospel in uh, the mega church, not not just in how it looked, but in some of the conversations that Taller ultimately had with people associated right. with that church, um, with I think the the pastor um, Cedric the Entertainer's character, mm-hmm. and uh, and with uh, you know another guy that I think we'll talk about later, yes. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, or even there was a there was like a small group kind of scene where. That's right. Yeah, where Taller brings up quite gently, I think, something about money and how it's spent. And this kid, like, goes off on him. Like, what, we're not allowed to make money? And, (laughs) you know, he gets a pushback like he's, you know, a socialist just for for making a comment like that. But so, yeah, yeah, you definitely see some of the prosperity gospel in that church for sure. 
Um, the poverty gospel, is that a thing? I Googled it and <laughs> wasn't sure if it was, it was actually a thing. I just came across a couple posts from people who clearly were more prosperity uh, gospel um, uh, affectionate, and they were sort of using uh, poverty gospel as a straw man. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's, yeah. it, may, it may not be a thing. thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I use it just because I guess I wanted to coin a term for well, I like the, it. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you know, one thing I did notice is that Toller is living in a kind of spare, sort of almost monk-like way, it seems right. to me. Like that house he's in, it's kind of a big house, but like the front living room is empty. Yeah. There's nothing in there. And in his bedroom, I thought it looked kind of austere, and it, it almost seemed like a sort of self-imposed uh, poverty that he was living. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at one point... Um, Cedric the Entertainer's character, Pastor Jeffers. Interesting that he's is Pastor Joel. Um, so when isn't Je- is there Jeffers or something? I yeah, feel like it's Joel, a- Pastor Joel Jeffers, and so that's interesting that Schrader would use that name um, and for the megachurch pastor. But he tells Taller, he's like, God does not want our suffering; He suffered for us. So. Those are the two extremes, right? That it's like either God's will is for each of us to be wealthy and prosperous or that we all must sort of suffer continuously as a penalty for our sinfulness, which is, I mean, not necessarily what Toller is is um, saying, but yeah. I feel like there's an element of that in, in his actions. By the end, yeah. Yeah, by the end, <laughs> yeah. certainly. He, yeah. He's like, we would all suffer. <laughs> um, and neither is true, obviously, neither extreme is true and Mm -hmm. I feel like (laughs) to take a cue from another film a Pixar film Inside Out oh I haven't seen that one you haven't seen that it's it's actually looks cute it is it's good and Mm -hmm. and it has a profound and almost a biblical approach to this Mm -hmm. which is that sorrow is necessary to truly experience joy Mm, on a deeper level as well as to produce empathy for others Uh, so there's that mix where it's not you're not supposed to be sorrowful or, or suffering all the time mm-hmm. neither are you ordained to everyone is ordained to be wealthy all the time or things right. to, but that there's a, a symbiotic relationship between the two yeah and i think that you know in the church in the film you have one church embodying one and the other church embodying mm-hmm. the other and it's so much more complicated than that <laughs> right but, exactly uh, yeah very true you know one of one of the main issues that irritates reverend toller is that his church's celebration is heavily subsidized by Ed Balk, the CEO of a local oil company who happens to also be a valued member of the Abundant Life Church. And we'll talk specifically about the oil company piece of it in the next segment. But, but here I just want to focus on something else. We hear arguments for and against the separation of church and state. But should there be a separation of church and commerce? I mean, my knee-jerk reaction is yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm also sympathetic to um, that church in the movie because the the CEO guy he does save that historic church for them. Right. So I understand it's not the, all evil. Yeah, I understand the dilemma they're in. You know, I, I think that the problem becomes if if they're listening to him about other things. You know, by mm. all means, take his money, but. Don't let him dictate. <laughs> That's mostly how I feel about commerce in the right. church. It, I mean, it's best to keep them apart as much as possible because it's just too easy for things to get um, hairy. 
Yeah, things can go <laughs> awry pretty quickly. It's, it's yeah. um, I guess to use the political analogy, it's like the Supreme Court ruling on Citizens United, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know essentially treats corporations as individuals and allows them to donate money to political candidates. Right. Um, so if one is opposed to that, then one might also be opposed to corporate money entering the church. As you said, if they also have a say in right. some of the actions of the church, because then mm-hmm. you have a corporate entity necessarily dictating what that church does. And yeah. it, again, those things, those relationships tend to go awry pretty quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just the hint <laughs> of corporate influence um, on a church and church's actions is, is just reason enough to steer clear. Mm-hmm. And we know this from, um, was it Matthew 21, 12 and 13 and Mark 11, 15 to 18, where Jesus is overturning ta- tables in the temple for these money changers and merchants. And that's just a, his reaction in anger to people trying to profit in the church right. and off of church people. So that alone tells you how Jesus feels about it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty strong statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is with Pastor Jeffers, the way that he defers to um, Ed Bulk, mm-hmm. there's this, it reminds me, like in James chapter 2, like the first nine verses, it talks about showing favoritism to the wealthy at the expense of the poor and it it literally calls it a sin but yet we don't hear about that in you know i guess i don't hear about that normally in discourse well churches yeah actually you know you i mean when was the last time you heard a sermon about money you know i mean it's 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 a real controversial topic a lot of people get very touchy if you talk about it you know and i mean there's stuff in there there's the whole camel and the eye of the needle yeah, thing and nobody yeah. wants to hear about that no one so, wants to hear about yeah that. it's an uncomfortable topic um so yeah it kind of just gets steered clear of so even without churches being um entwined with commerce you can tell there's a, a wariness a lot of times about well we don't want to make anybody mad we don't want to make anybody feel guilty if they happen to be rich you know and I, I get that, but it, it kind of means that we don't get to talk about greed, and greed is a sin. So. It, it sure <laughs> is. And, but, and that's the thing. Jesus never shied away from that. Mm-mm. He talked about money very often and yeah. made people uncomfortable, mm-hmm. which is you know, ultimately why they wanted to get him right. um, because of that. And so, you know, and he said, you cannot serve God and mammon mm-hmm. or God and money and he said it addressing individuals, but it's probably an even greater truth for churches as yeah. well, mm-hmm. uh, as we have seen in our time. So we're out of time on this first segment, but we'll be back for more with Brooke Pierce. You are listening to Evidence of Things Screen. Welcome back to Evidence of Things Screen. This is Lincoln Alabaster with my guest, Brooke Pierce, here to discuss the film First Reformed, written and directed by Paul Schrader and starring Ethan Hawke in this episode titled First and Last. So we just wrapped the conversation about churches and commerce. And in this segment, I'm interested in talking about churches and complicity when it comes to social injustices. So in the film... The fuse to a slow burn is lit when a pregnant woman named Mary, 
How's that for a biblical mm, parallel? Yeah, subtle. <laughs> Very subtle. Um, one of the few parishioners of First Reformed Church, she asks Reverend Toller to speak with her, her troubled husband, Michael. And Michael is an environmental activist who was recently released from jail. In fact, so troubled is he about the decay of the planet that he wants Mary to abort their unborn child because he just can't bear the thought of raising a child in this ecological decline. Reverend Toller's subsequent conversation with Michael has a very lasting effect on Toller. So, Brooke, during that conversation, Michael asked Reverend Toller, can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? To which Toller replies, who can know the mind of God? What did you make of this exchange, both the question and the answer? Uh, well, just as a writer, I thought it was great. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, it's just a couple of great lines. Um, I thought that it, it kind of uh, said a lot about the state of mind of each of them. You know, I think Michael already felt like he had his answer to that question. I think he felt very much that the answer was no. Um, and then Toller, uh, you know, I mean, I would expect a man of God to actually say, yes, you can right. forgive us. Uh, right. That Toller would say that he doesn't know tells you a lot about where Toller's at. We know that, I think from pretty early on, that he's not, he's not been able to pray, really. Hasn't really been able, he's been feeling very disconnected from God. So I can see why he would feel like, well, who knows the mind of God? He doesn't feel um, in, in contact with it. So, um, yeah, I thought it said a lot about how they feel. Um, Beyond that, I mean, I don't know, like, theologically, I don't know, it's pretty (laughs) deep. Uh, I mean, like I said, normally I would say, well, yes, God forgives us of all the horrible things we do, but I don't know, maybe one can make an argument that uh, turning your back on God's creation is a lot like turning your back on God, you know? I hadn't thought about that. That's actually pretty good. I would have thought, I was thinking, like, this as a as a pastor, as a reverend, this should have been a softball question for him, right? I mean, <laughs> right. that... You like, should know how to answer that yeah, one, yeah. you should know by That's now. like the why do bad things happen question, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you should have that answer just in your back pocket. Um, but, it, you know, it's at the root... That question is at the root of the Bible and the Christian faith. It's not just what we've done to the environment and God's creation, but also what we've done to each other. Mm-hmm. And the answer that Christianity has is that you know what? Actually, God could not forgive us on our own. We we deserve death, really, for everything we've done. That's that enters the the door for the good news that God has accepted the sinless life sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, and that's the gospel. So that should have been sort of an easy, <laughs> like, hey, no, you know, this is what. Uh, he broke, you know, I'll break it down for you. But with that answer, that ambiguous answer, as you said, it, it shows where Toller is yeah. in his own faith right mm-hmm. now. So, yeah, he's feeling pretty uncertain. Yeah, <laughs> very. Yeah. <laughs> and it only gets worse. For right. me. <laughs> yes, it gets much worse. <laughs> much, much worse. So I've asked this question in a previous podcast, but mm-hmm. I'm going to ask it again sure. to you. Why? are so many people who identify as Christians leading the opposition against the, I guess, 98% last time I checked, of scientists who not only preach the damaging effects of climate change, but also that man-made pollutants are a major contributing factor to it? Yeah, I think, um, 
I mean, I think it's more political than religious. I mm. think um, it kind of goes back to, I think it was the late 70s or early 80s when a lot of evangelical Christians sort of aligned themselves with the Republican Party. And they did that, you know, to pursue certain um, issues like abortion. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, the Republican Party, like any party, has various constituencies. So right. it also doesn't just represent evangelical Christians. It represents sort of large organizations that want a lot of deregulation because environmental regulation can be expensive. So I think probably sometime in the 80s or 90s, the party sort of kind of started becoming the anti-environment party where they were sort of pushing the idea that global warming doesn't exist or now it's that, uh, you know, um, people don't affect climate change or... But in any case, you know, if you're a part of that party, like even if you're in the party because you're a Christian and you, you want to stop abortion, you're probably going to absorb some of those other uh, platforms, those other beliefs. So I guess I kind of just feel like a lot of those particular conservative Christians have taken on other platforms of the party, and that's basically why they argue that. Now, I don't think they're coming from a religious place, but I do think some of them use a, a religious argument, which is kind of like, well, the end is near, you know, yeah. uh, these things, these horrible ecological disasters are just signs of, of the times. And who am I to try to stop it? You know, it's so. such a bizarre argument. And yeah. it goes back to what we talked about in the first segment with this intertwining with commerce. Mm -hmm. Right. Because yeah. it's not in the interest of, of many of these companies um, to to say, OK, yes, this is real and we can do something to stop it and, and that would require investing money in cleaner technology right. or even in some cases shutting down and so like that's yeah that's just not going to happen in, in some <laughs> well you know community. it's worth noting no other country argues about this that's it's true. just us it, and yeah. it's because it's been so politicized and I mean, it's scary to see something like the environment become politicized, you know, and, and right. we've, we've seen the same thing happen recently to um, refugees. Mm. You know, a few years ago, conservative Christians were all about helping refugees. And then in the last couple of years, that party started demonizing refugees, particularly Syrian refugees. You know, there's this whole line of discussion about, you know, that they're all terrorists and, and coming here to, you know, to kill us. And next thing you knew, a lot of people who earlier would have been very supportive of refugees weren't. I mean, I remember I saw the, the North American division of the Adventist church around that time post something on Facebook about, you know, pro-refugee. Right. And there were all these comments underneath being like, you guys shouldn't be taking a political stand, you know? Really? It, it wouldn't have been considered a political stand. Right. That it's, much earlier, just like the environment back in, I think, probably the 70s when they were passing, like, Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. I don't think that was considered political back then. Right. It should not be a political. It yeah. should be a, a humanist. Mm -hmm. um, well, particularly yeah. for Christians. I mean, both those things seem like no-brainers to me. Right. That, That's the irony, is yeah. that if anyone should be known for taking care of the environment, it should be Christians particularly those who believe God is the creator, right, yeah. right? If he created, then you would say, well, then I should be someone who is a good steward to take care of this. And, you know, in Genesis with Adam and Eve, their first job was to take care of it. Right, yeah. So if you profess to believe these things, that should also be your uh, responsibility. So it's it's just a bizarre 
um, twist. Yeah, and those two issues, too, are totally linked, by the way. We've already got climate refugees all over the place, people who are losing their homes because right. they're being deluged and with yeah. water. <laughs> it's, it's a bizarre, yeah. bizarre paradox because you have many people who do not believe in God or, or um, are agnostic, and, and they are advocating for humans to be good <laughs> stewards of the right. resources, yeah. right? While many yeah. who believe in, in creation are disregarding the effects of our actions on the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's just this really twisted... Um, yeah, and you'll sometimes see people uh, try to make this kind of like uh, pretend humble argument like mm. oh we mere mortals couldn't be couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly <laughs> having this effect on the earth we <laughs> seven billion people who have harnessed the power to destroy the planet no we couldn't be Not we us. couldn't be doing it yeah it's, it's a false <laughs> it's such, such a false narrative mm. so later in the film this is where it really starts to turn dark it's discovered that michael the the husband of um, mary and the activist, he had hid a suicide vest filled with explosives hidden in the garage. And his activism at this point had reached the point of really extreme radicalism. So as someone who's part of the peace ministry, you, you have marched for many causes and against many injustices. How do you personally draw that line between activism and radicalism? Um, I think for me, I mean, first of all, almost everything I've ever taken part in is very peaceful and like in a really ostentatious kind of way. I mean, even a lot of things where there's uh, anything with civil disobedience, there's always discussion of uh, the principles of, of peaceful activism. Right. But, you know, uh, radicalism, I guess my definition would be um, anybody willing to hurt other people for mm. a cause. Like mm. that's just kind of my personal definition. Um, and I've, I've never seen that myself, but, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it, it is uh, it is a risk. But, um, yeah. I can imagine, mm-hmm. the film doesn't show it, but I can imagine yeah. a point where Michael, in his early days, was a peaceful activist. Right. And then he gets to this point where he is just so distraught. He sees, I guess, the corporate machinery and has no hope. And, in fact, his... His attitude toward this sends Reverend Toller off on his own yeah. descent into that type of thinking thing. as well. I mean, you know what actually um, that part of the movie made me think of a lot? I don't know if you heard about this, but a couple of months ago, um, there was a man in Brooklyn who burned himself alive I uh, heard in about Prospect that. Park. And he left a note, and the, the whole point was that he wanted to draw attention to what we're doing to the planet. And it hardly got any attention at all, you know? So, I mean, I don't know if, if that would have been Michael's frame of mind, you know, right. hoping to do something, uh, you know, really damaging like this to draw attention to the cause. But, I mean, it was an unusual move. I would never really expect to find a suicide vest with an environmental activist. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty extreme. Mm-hmm. And he, Reverend Toller, when he had that conversation with, with Michael, he certainly didn't instill any hope. And mm-hmm. is, is there anything he could have done, do you think, at that point? I, that, Michael was really far gone. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what you would have done with that. I think, because I, normally I would think, well, that's like an emergency call, you know, a counselor, even take him to the emergency room kind of, kind of thing. But um, 
but you know he he might have run off or you know I, yeah. I actually thought what Toller did made a lot of sense where he said well let's keep talking let's talk tomorrow you right. know and that sounds like it would be a good way to handle it because you want to keep the person in dialogue and and keep maybe offering them something to do some purpose some hope you know but it, it did feel to me like he was probably just too far gone yeah I think so I think so because I agree with you that just the idea for Toller to keep the dialogue going, mm-hmm. keep him engaged, was the right thing to do. And that in the end, spoiler alert, that Michael basically committed suicide. And so the fact that he did that, um, I don't think Toller should should have any guilt no, over that. Uh-uh. But it, it certainly sent him down um, a dark path. But I, I, I agree. I think... Michael at that point was already beyond the point of, of listening to any sort of rationale or any yeah. hope. Yeah. So, you know, as mentioned in the first segment, the company that the wealthy Abundant Life Church congregant Ed Balk runs is also polluting the landscape. So two questions with that. One, is there anything wrong with that as long as he's operating within the law? I mean, pollution is... Yes, that's wrong. It's definitely wrong. <laughs> Pollution is, is a, you know... It's, Polluting it's, your community is wrong. <laughs> and, then, and then, two, do Christians have any obligation to create companies or work for companies that are socially responsible? Well, so again, first one, wrong. Um, but, I mean, like, I think the law is great, but Christians, I think we got to do better. Yeah. You know, um, if you're polluting your community, that's a problem, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Call uh, me old-fashioned. But... Um, <laughs> As, as far as uh, Christians' obligation, I mean, I, I think if you're starting a business, surely, I mean, and you're a Christian, surely you would want it to be socially responsible. Right. I mean, I, I guess I just, I can understand why it would be tempting for it not to. I'm sure you'd save on costs, you know, depending on what kind of business it is. But, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's, it's hard to justify starting something um, off on the wrong foot. If you're working somewhere, I know it's a little more complicated. You know, you find out maybe your company isn't as socially responsible as you want, but you've got kids and bills to pay. Yeah, and, that's tough. You know, yeah, and I mean, I, I, I get that, I think. And sometimes it's, it might be complicated, too. Maybe your company is socially responsible in some ways and not in others, mm-hmm. and you got to try to weigh it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I've always been you know, the sort of person who thinks you got to try to, you know, take whatever steps you can, you right. know. So. If you feel like your company is really bad, you know, then start looking for work, you know, see what you can do. Um, and, and just generally in life, I think, you know, you, we should be moving towards more social responsibility. It doesn't mean you have to, like, figure it all out immediately. It's, you know, when you start looking around, you realize so many of the products you buy, there's either have bad ties or, right. you know, companies aren't paying their employees right and all this stuff. And I mean, it get very overwhelming. So... I think, you know, just a bit at a time trying to figure out how to be more socially responsible. No, I think that's a a good approach because Mm -hmm. truthfully, you could probably find something about every major company that isn't so socially (laughs) responsible. Um, And and it is difficult. Like, what if someone, the only job they can get is at a fast food restaurant? Right. But obviously, fast food is not good for you. Right, yeah. It's not necessarily... um, creating healthy lifestyles, but do you turn that job down because of that? So it gets into tricky uh, areas, and it's probably a case-by-case 
for each person. Yeah, I, I think so. Because I think sometimes people get, they fall into the trap of thinking, well, I can't, I can't be perfect in every area, so I'm just going to throw it all out. I'm not even right. going to bother, you know. And that, I think, is crazy. You, you, you're never going to get perfection on that, you know. You got you to gotta try to do what you can. Absolutely. No, I agree. So to my admittedly limited knowledge, uh, the church, and here I'm talking about the larger Seventh-day Adventist church, doesn't have a particularly strong history in social activism. And, and mm. if I'm wrong, you can correct me. No, you're that. right. But as part of the peace ministry here at Church of the Advent Hope, why isn't the denomination not our church? I feel is is different as an outlier. But why isn't the denomination on the front lines of things like the Me Too movement and actively against like domestic abuse, racial injustice, sexism, xenophobia? You know, we just talked about the the refugees, genocide, and other human rights atrocities. I think um, I think it's a few things. I think that the church has often avoided what it views as worldly, and I think sometimes um, social activism, in particular, is viewed as worldly. I mean, I've heard some Adventists actually act as if social activism is a bad thing, that you literally shouldn't be involved in it. Wow. Um, so they they see it as kind of a, some sort of purity thing, trying to to keep outside of that stuff. I I do not understand that, but neither do I. Yeah, it's it's there though, and um, also I think you know the church uh, has often been big on religious liberty. Mostly, um, I think it's about not wanting Adventists to be forced by the state to work on Sabbath and things like that. And so they've tended to be pretty big advocates for separation of church and state in a way that a lot of other, um, you know, fairly conservative fundamentalist denominations are not. You know, like as we discussed earlier, a lot of them are actually very entwined with political parties. Um, But Adventists have traditionally stayed away from that. And so I think that's part of this fear of like, well, we're not supposed to be involved. Until Ben Carson. <laughs> Until Ben Carson. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. <laughs> Sorry, we'll not get too political, but yes. So. so yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think also, I mean, we're, we're still arguing over women's ordination in this church. You know, if, if, if you know, if, if women can't be considered equal, yeah, I mean, we're still talking about, you know, hierarchies and all kinds of stuff. So, it's yeah, so big, big surprise that that church is not the one that's at the front lines of, uh, that's so <laughs> of Me Too. So disappointing. <laughs> it um, is. But, well, and, and I still, like, where was, where was the, the Adventist outrage over the Muslim ban? You know, be, precisely right. because they do usually care about religious liberty issues. Right. And that was deeply disappointing to me. In fact, Ben Carson was the first one to actually suggest that. He started it before Trump even did. So, yeah, I don't know. I think the church is afraid of offending people. And, and it's a big church. You know, it, you, it, it was born in America, but, of course, through mission work is all over Correct. the globe. And I think a lot of times they're in countries where things are a bit more traditional and they're afraid mm-hmm. of uh, rocking the boat. Um, yeah, I mean, even here mm-hmm. in New York with different churches, I mean, Church of the Ivan Hope probably considered more of a... Um, progressive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we actually have a reputation of being like hippie, like which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> it is funny when you think about it. But even it's like that's a, it's a low bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in our conference, there are some very conservative mm-hmm. churches, and and certainly throughout the country and throughout the world. So we are, um, you know, even just within the de- denomination, there's a wide spectrum uh, of positions on this. 
And, you know, what I'll say is this, is that if there are few or no women at the heights of the power structure, then injustices <laughs> against women right. are less likely to be acted upon. And unfortunately, that's what you have here. And the same is true for, you know, minorities, people of international origin. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the not doing anything about racial injustice is particularly shocking, considering that it's an unusually multi-ethnic church, the yes. Adventist church. Um, but not really doing anything on that score. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's again, it's it's those at the heights of the power structure, and unless that's diversified, then you probably won't see a lot of emphasis on issues of of women and people of color. Yeah, I do think. I mean, just to to give credit to the people who are really pushing hard on that, yeah. I, I do think there are people who are making headway in some of the Adventist institutions, particularly I think maybe some of the universities. Yes, we will. Um, at least acknowledge that and shout that out. We don't want to make it seem like it's all <laughs> yeah, negative. Right. But but I do feel like unless those at the top view those that they serve as the very same mm. as them, like, mm -hmm. like what Jesus said, like whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done also to me. Um, yeah. And you said that in Matthew 25, 40 and 45. And the thing is, that's not to say that anyone is greater or lesser than another, but that how you treat the person you think the least of reveals who you are. Yeah. So if you treat everyone with respect, then you have nothing to be concerned about. That's so great. so true. And then perhaps another guiding principle is mm -hmm. that quote um, that Pastor Todd had in, in uh, last week's sermon from John R.W. Stott, who in his book, The Message of Romans, wrote, when laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved that. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. So, <laughs> that's so good. you know, and that, so that's to push back on, like, Jeff Sessions using Romans 13 to justify the separation of kids from their, their folks yeah. at the border. So, anyhow, <laughs> let's pause. Let's pause for a minute. The politics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll come right back with the third and final segment, you're listening to Evidence of Things Screened. This is Evidence of Things Screened. I'm Lincoln Alabaster. My guest is Brooke Pierce. The title of this episode is First and Last, and the subject is First Reformed, small independent film about a troubled reverend. And in this final segment, I want to talk about that very notion of the troubled reverend, Reverend Tuller decides to keep a diary documenting one year in his life. It's clear he's losing faith in God, in humanity, and in the church. And at one point he says, this is not the church I was called to. So his health is declining due to what may be stomach cancer, I'm not sure. And he's not helping it because he's secretly abusing alcohol. And um, the backstory is that he was a former military chaplain who encouraged his son to enlist in the service only to have his son killed in battle. And this seemed to be the issue that that caused his wife to walk away from their marriage and divorce him. And we know also in from the film that Tala had a failed affair with a woman who was on staff at Abundant Life. So we're we're dealing with a man that has many demons. And, you know, in fact, instead of influencing Michael toward embracing life, the activist, Michael ends up influencing Tola toward some dangerously radical thoughts. Mm -hmm. 
So with all that, was there anything positive in Reverend Toller's life? Not really. <laughs> you know, I, I, the only thing I can think is uh, his friendship, relationship with um, uh, Amanda Seyfried's character. Oh, yeah, Mary. Yeah, that was like a little positive, I guess. Yeah. You know, yeah. but... Um, but that was about it that I can think of. Yeah, I guess that was the only thing. That's the only sort of ray of hope. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, I thought about that and I was like, for that point in time it was, but I imagine that whoever that woman was at Abundant Life, that yeah. it may have also started oh, no. out like this. Oh, that's bad to think. <laughs> you know, and, and who knows? But I feel like whatever he's into is doomed ultimately because the root cause is... I think himself, like mm. he's he's physically, spiritually, emotionally hurting. Yeah. And yeah. no matter what he gets into, it's a it's a temporary. The alcohol is a temporary mm -hmm. fix. The the new friendship with Mary is a temporary fix yeah. until he deals with all the inner demons that he has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So I I saw it somewhat hypocritical for Tola to rail against the destruction of the environment while he was destroying his own body <laughs> through alcohol. What did you think about that? I mean, I, I don't think he was probably in the state of mind to consider whether it was, you know, hypocritical or not. But I, I guess I thought that that um, bodily degradation was more of kind of a, a metaphor for environmental degradation or yes. for his, his inner uh, rot or whatever was happening <laughs> to him. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's true. Like, you that, that would be uh, consistent. But yeah, I wasn't expecting a lot of consistency from him considering his state, state of mind. Yeah, I like what you said, that, that it's metaphorical um, in, in parallel to what the environment, what was going on in the environment. Mm -hmm. Because I think even, that, that's a good point, because even without, even if he wasn't drinking, yeah. he was already suffering from an illness. Yeah, he had something. Yeah. So, so that was already a breakdown, a decaying. Um, and then, you know, he was adding fuel to that fire yeah he was trying to feel better but making it worse making it worse yeah. but I, I like the idea that, that it was used as a metaphor you know in a way we're all hypocritical when we you know lash out at others for misdeeds and wrongdoings like it's easy to sit here and say yeah he was doing this and but the the point is Jesus said we complain about the speck of dust in our neighbor's eye when we have a plank in our own so yeah it's easy to sit here and judge but for every person, there's always there's something that you know I should be working on for my own self as well. But um, but we are hopefully you're about in Tala. hopefully you're in better shape than yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. That guy's trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was not it's not going well for him. But looking at him, looking at Reverend Tala, I thought of Henry David Thoreau's quote that the mass of men and you could say also women. The mass of, of humanity lead lives of quiet desperation. So this quote, do you think Thoreau was right? And do you think his statement would change if he wrote about the mass of Christians instead? Mm. Um, yeah, I know that quote, and uh, it's, it's really depressing. I, it sounds to me like it might be true. I, I hate to think of that. I find it heartbreaking to think that that's true. And yet, you know, um, 
I suspect it might be. If he was talking about Christians, I, I don't really think it would make any difference. I think yeah. it would be just as true. Isn't that sad, though? It is, yeah. I, I feel like that is sad because um, mm-hmm. I've seen many Christians who are are no more joyful in their everyday lives than you know, someone who professes no spiritual beliefs. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It seems like, like we all same. should be, but yeah, yeah it, it ends up seeming like it is very much the same. Yeah, and if that's the case, then then the question is: so then, what's the point? You know, <laughs> I mean, that's like that's what I would see. Like, if yeah. I were on the outside, right? I would say, yeah, well, well, yeah. Then no. What's the point if you if you're no more happy mm-hmm. or joyful? And for me, the answer has always been that that persevering in faith is worth it for the reward of knowing the character and the love of God in a deeper way than if I had given up. Mm, yeah. You know, feelings yeah. feelings are poor leaders because they're always going to shift one way or the other, and they'll always distract you from the best path. So I think it's not only true spiritually, um, but also for any sort of rigorous academic or athletic or professional environment as well. Like, we'll honor and celebrate those who persevere beyond the pain and obstacles and the setbacks for whatever environment they're in. You know, for the athlete, for um, the academic, we always celebrate them, and we know that they've nothing has been just a smooth sailing right. for them. Yeah. There was, they persevered through some difficulty. Yeah, we're all the more impressed because they have done that. Right, yeah. and I feel like mm-hmm. God is the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same spiritually. If you persevere, there's, there's a benefit in that. There's yeah. a reward in that. Yeah. So I think for me, that's where, um, you know, yeah, it's a, maybe temporarily uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily happy at this moment but it gets back to that that thing from uh inside out with the the benefit of sorrow or mm-hmm. times of sorrow yeah. and suffering leading to something deeper yeah yeah and it like it makes you more empathetic and better able to help somebody else in need perhaps exactly yeah exactly so mm-hmm. that to me is is uh my response so yeah toller was a reverend who knew the scriptures and he had access, as we all do, to God through prayer. And yet he was still deeply disturbed, as was Michael, who was going to church as well. Mm-hmm. Like, he was going to church with, with his wife. So should Christ be enough for people suffering from depression and suicidal thoughts? I mean, I don't know. Maybe we have to define what we mean by Christ being enough yeah, like what yeah. you know what does that mean uh, I think sometimes uh, Christians project the message though that as long as you read, read the gospels and have a relationship with God everything should be smooth sailing but I yeah mean, people, I guess that's what I yeah yeah but I mean I'm... people are complicated and they have a lot of needs um you know I mean I I think if somebody is has a mental or emotional problem they should see professional support you know I mean, like we don't question whether or not, um, you know, if you got a broken leg, you should go to the doctor. Um, <laughs> if people have emotional needs can go to the doctor too and, and should. And I think sometimes in the church, there's this tendency to tell people, no, 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 just pray more or right. talk to your pastor or, but I, there, there are counselors and psychiatrists and people who, who specialize in this. And, and, you know, and the solution to depression might be multiple things, you know, and it, it might involve deepening your relationship with Christ and, and learning to uh, walk in his steps and help others in a way to, to help you find more meaning. But 
it might also include some kind of medication, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I agree with you because you, mm -hmm. the, the physical aspect of it, that's how I would, that's how I think about it. It's like, should Christ be enough for someone who's, who's deeply disturbed or depressed? I would say, well, no more than he should be enough that if I got hit by a car, you know, that, <laughs> right, like, right. Oh, then I wouldn't need the hospital, right? I mean, don't worry, Lincoln, we'll pray for you. Yeah, we'll pray, we'll pray for you. You're just lying on the street, <laughs> you just lie and, there. like, be healed. I mean, you know, can God miraculously heal? Sure, but mm -hmm. most of the time, He works through people. Yeah, and institutions He gave us that people who place. know what they're doing. <laughs> exactly, to help us. They live. They, they live for this. Yeah, this is what they they were born and trained to do, exactly. and so. Yeah, I agree. There's a stigma mm -hmm. around mental illness, but yeah. um, for anyone who's going through that, I feel that you should absolutely seek help. Mm -hmm. um, 100%. You know, medical help, there are hotlines and things like that. So uh, who knows if Michael had done that in the film or or, or Reverend Taller. Obviously, the film wouldn't be <laughs> that way. It'd be a different movie. It'd be a different movie. Would have movie. ended a lot earlier. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, those resources are there and they absolutely should be utilized by anyone. So, so that's, that's it. All right. That's it. Thanks, bro. Good talk. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> Hopefully they'll, they won't cut off the, uh, the podcast after this. <laughs> no politics. No politics. None. No more. Um, but no, really, thank you for uh, Thank being you. Here. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, to all our listeners, thank you, as always, for listening. Please find us and rate us on iTunes. Also, please visit us on our website at thingsscreened.com. We'll be back soon with another episode of Evidence of Things Screened. Until then, this is Lincoln Alabaster. Keep your faith up. <laughs> Evidence of Things Screen is an Advent Hope Ventures production in association with Church of the Advent Hope, a Seventh-day Adventist community on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in New York City. Go to adventhope.org for more information. Evidence of Things Screen is produced by Todd Stout, Tony Sebro, and Lincoln Alabaster, with technical assistance from Nicholas Zork, Roberto Rutherford, White Francis, and Jim Bogusky. Music provided by Jaw Rockin' Productions.